You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and David's Pick. And, you know, we, uh, we've generally, and we'll get back to it, uh, generally start with a Jody, a cadence call, and because many a times did they uh, help me get that last few hundred yards or a thousand yards or whatever it was. But today, uh, I started something yesterday on a veteran's story. And that was, I started it because my best friend, who is a vet, um, was going into surgery and very severe surgery, mouth surgery, uh, involving a tumor in his tongue and then the reconstruction of his tongue. And he will be up or laid up in the hospital for three or four weeks and then. be in the uh, hotel across the street from MD Anderson for they don't know how long and he'll be starting speech therapy learning how to speak all over again and and I ask every I ask all the rest of our brothers and sisters to take just a moment and say a little silent prayer for J Roy and uh, J Roy came through the surgery great he's in fine shape uh, he will start his rehab uh, probably within the next, uh, as soon as the swelling goes down. But everything went well, and uh, our prayers were answered for J. Roy. So with that being said, I'm offering that if you are someone you know has need for our brothers and sisters to say a silent prayer form or a prayer form, uh, contact me, David at americaswebradio.com, and/or if you'd like to, de- if you'd like us to dedicate a show to them, contact me, and we'll talk about the details of that. Um, but we have at the station, we love our veterans. Uh, as I tell everybody, I am what they call a Vietnam veteran era. I did serve, but I didn't go in country, and in many cases, I'm ashamed of it. But anyway, things happen, and um, that's where we are with it. So if if you're in need of prayer or you have a friend that is, just let us know, and we'll take care of it from there. Today is sort of, it's not sort of unique, it is very unique. This is the first crazy person that we've ever had in studio, no less, uh, that we're going to be interviewing. And many of you, particularly out in the J.C. area, Johns Creek area, that are members of the uh, Veterans Association out there, that Mike Mazel is the uh, president of and has been working on getting the healing wall up, and it's up, and it's great, and it's going to get even better in the near future and they're going to have their opening i believe on uh, 19th uh, 19th september at uh, four o'clock i believe it is so you yes. change the hours just a little bit so with that being said all of you people that don't recognize submarine mike raise your hand but you can still listen to him and we know that submarine mike i can remember do you have one one story? Could you limit this whole show to one story? No, no, I, <laughs> I don't think there's a vet out there that that has one story. Do you, Mike? No, no. If you've been a vet, 
you are definitely involved with other vets and you rag on one another different services but you all stand up for one another and uh, and one of the best times you can have in my opinion is is to get at a table with a number of vets and start the one-up game Okay, well, so you did this. Well, I did it. Better. I did this, and it was better than that. And then another person says, "Well, I, you know," and it just goes around and around. And the stories, you know, I I've said this many many times on the show, and there'd be two or three things that I want to stress. One is that if you join the military, any branch, any service. You're still a brother and a sister of everybody, and it's got to. The military has to be the biggest fraternity and sorority in the world. And uh, you walk in a room, and I would say that 99.9 percent of the vets can will pick out another vet in a heartbeat. And uh, you just know they just got that look, or they got the cap on, or they got whatever, <laughs> you know. That's a pretty good clue. Uh, Vietnam, that's, that's, that's a clue that you might be uh, have been a vet. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, the other thing I always say is that if you're a teenager, you're graduating from high school or from college, and you haven't looked at the military as a career or the military as your first job, then do so. It is absolutely fantastic today, and the options and the and the education that you'll get. And uh, I'm very proud to say that one of my sons is in the Air Force and um, doing quite well. The only thing that really bothers me is that I have to salute him, <laughs> uh, and uh, he's already making rank and grade quite quickly and. Uh, he went in as an officer, and I came out as a grunt, so you can take it from there. But it's a privilege and an honor to salute him and realize that uh, I've got a son that cares about his country and uh, cares about protecting it, and very proud of him. So with that being said, uh, should I call you Mike or Crazy Man? <laughs> no. Mike just, is fine. Mike is fine. Okay. So let's let's go back to day one. What what in the world would possess a person to be locked up in a big fish? Well, I tell you, the story goes back to uh, essentially uh, 1957-58. Um, I was a 12-year-old child at that time and into black and white TV like most kids and saw this series called The Silent Service. And The Silent Service ran for two years, 1957 and 58. And I happened to have all 39 episodes on flash drive of the 39 of the 57 series and 36 episodes from 58. Uh, but there was one particular episode that really struck me as to what my interest in submarines had been. And that was the second episode that they had from the USS Trout. Now, I'll bring you guys back to Corregidor, 1942, uh, just before Corregidor had fallen. Our mission, or the mission of the Trout, was to uh, bring armaments, shells, um, casings, and so forth, to Corregidor to help the Marines there try to hold off any attack by the Japanese. Uh, and the important part about that is 
submarines, even today, they require lead ballast to give it negative buoyancy. In other words, the process of a submarine submerging is you have a vent valve at the top of the ballast tank. When you open up the vent valve, the air that's in that ballast tank that allows it to stay on the surface will vent out and it will be replaced by salt water, giving you negative buoyancy. But that negative buoyancy is helped by 20 tons of lead ballast that is in the ballast tank. Well, in order for the trout to bring the armaments to Corregidor, they literally removed the 20 tons of lead ballast in the ballast tanks and loaded in board 20 tons of shells and shell casings and everything inside the, the submarine. They were able to evade the minefields all the way to Corregidor, and they got to Corregidor safely and offloaded the 20 tons of shell and shell casings and other ammunition that they had brought in. Well, they needed 20 tons now to create that negative buoyancy and allow the boat to return to the Philippines safely. Well, the Marines, they had approached the Marines because they wanted to get sand to create the 20 tons of ballast that they needed to return. The Marines would not let them take the sand from the hooches that they had built because that was the only protection that they had if they were attacked. So the USS Trout wound up going to the treasury of Corregidor and removed 20 tons of gold and silver bullion and brought it back to the Philippines. That was the ballast that they used to allow them to have negative buoyancy to return to the Philippines. Three months later, Corregidor had fallen, but because the gold and bullion was safely in Philippines, that saved the treasury of Corregidor. Wow. What a story. And that's one of typical stories of the heroism of the guys that served aboard submarines. And that was essentially what I said, man, these guys are iron men in steel ships. i got to be one of them. Hmm. And that was my impetus for when my tame time came to uh, go into the military. Okay. I can't remember the the show and maybe it was a show that you were you're run silent run deep is that a movie or is that was that was that? a movie that was okay. a movie yeah and then what was the other one with the there was another submarine show on tv that had this huge open glass thing in the front of it oh that was uh, 20,000 leagues <laughs> under the sea okay. that was all fictitious yeah yeah <laughs> But you know, I, I still, like I said, I went on the on the sub that's in Charleston, and um, even as small as I am, it, it bothered me. And then thinking about sharing a wreck with somebody, and uh, you know, it, it just uh, I, I just couldn't do it. And I, and I applaud you for uh, being able to hold your head together and. And let it not bother you. Did you? And one of the one of the shows. I don't know if it was which show, but uh, you know, 
I could I could sit there on the couch or whatever and watch it and still be claustrophobic. And then when there was the dripping of wherever the water was coming from and they'd show the scene of, you know, somehow we've sprung a leak and I'm thinking, oh, golly. Leaks are very, very dangerous in submarines. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I can recall one time having a bolt shoot. Um, the head of the the bolt broke off, and it shot across in the pump room below control room, and you could hear that bing, and it hit the uh, inside of the the wall. We had water coming in, and we were down, you know, a couple hundred feet. Um, atmospheres change every 33 feet. So uh, you're at sea level when you're on the surface, and then at 33 feet, you're at you're at uh, one level down and then so forth. So at um, 100 feet, you're basically three atmospheres down. So the pressure is building and building. Um, one of the things that we used to love to do when we would have guests on board, hmm. if we took out riders, would would be I would take a piece of string and I would run it from one side of the bulkhead in one of the compartments to the other side and then as you would go down two three four hundred feet you would see that string would just start collapsing in and you could have a six inch spread from a taut string down to a a bow in the string as the pressure on the on the hull increased wow pushing it together yeah yeah Yeah. so the other thing that and like I said, I, I can't say I was a big submarine movie watcher or television watcher, but the other thing would be either the cracking or the creaking sound. Yeah, that's obviously something you also hear. But I will say this in defense of all of that. If I ever was recalled to go in, there would only be one branch of the service that I would go in, and it would be back in submarines. Yeah, but you'd be older than the subs. That's true. <laughs> that is true. And you might start creaking a little bit. I, yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> now, uh, you know, it's funny that you bring that up, because obviously uh, today our country is where it's never been before and treading water where it's never tread before. But uh, two things I can say. One is that we lost one of our hosts to the pandemic. Uh, He was called back up. He was retired, and uh, General Richard Dix, um, Mm -hmm. he was called back up as a a logistics expert, uh, and he runs, he and another, and an admiral, I think, uh, run the logistics of the pandemic from ventilators to rubber gloves. And uh, we don't know when he'll be back. Uh, he's still still working it. Um, the other thing is, I don't think we've had that I've had a guest on, or we've had a guest on at the station. Um, and I would too, if I were called back up, or or if there was a need and they'd let an old man in. Uh, yeah, I'd raise my hand in a heartbeat. And I don't think I've had a guest veteran that hadn't said the same thing and uh, that's got to be a scary thought to our any of our enemies that well you know there's something that really irritates me um, 
And it has for many years. Uh, obviously, I've been out of the military uh, since the early 70s when I came back from Vietnam. But um, there's no reason. I mean, during my private business careers and so forth, I developed skill sets on computers and could certainly take the place of a 20-some-odd-year-old right now and provide functions of purchasing or inventory or something on a computer that they could do and free them up to do the lifting that I can't anymore. And that's what irritates me is why hasn't the Department of Defense reached out to retired or former military to allow them to assist in the non-critical purchasing efforts and so forth? You know, uh, that that have to be a janitorial position for me. <laughs> that's that's about as far as I can qualify. You know, taking the trash out or separating the edible from unedible garbage. <laughs> I don't know if you in the Navy had that, but we had it in the Army. As you'd come out of the uh, chow and dump your tray, you'd dump part in the edible and part in the non-edible. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, on board. Uh, when I was uh, first aboard my submarine USS Pomadon, which was a diesel uh, boat, it was, by the way, it was the very first diesel electric boat that was classified as a guppy, greater underwater propulsion power. And we were the very first boat that was reconverted in 1947 after World War II to... Uh, have a an operating snorkel system on the boat. The snorkel system allows a submarine to run its engines while submerged so it can charge its batteries. Prior to a snorkel system, uh, you had to surface at night to run your engines to charge the batteries. Is this so because you, of the air quality? Or, no, it's or? because you needed air to run the uh, engines. Yeah, right. You, you know, it, it gets fed by air okay. and uh, exhaust f- uh, fumes come out the side, which could, uh, since it's diesel fuel, it would have a, sometimes a white smoke, which could be seen in the daytime. So that was why you operated uh, on batteries in the daytime and surface sometimes at night to charge your batteries. Did you get as much power from batteries as diesel? Um, No, uh, not normally, but uh, uh, you could on what they call the the finishing rate, the half-hour finishing rate, you could then do that. But on my particular boat, because we were a refit, we were a Guppy 2A, and there were only about eight or nine that were converted that way. Um, we had special things on board that allowed us to uh, do things that other boats couldn't. Um, and so uh, that included both speed and uh, so forth. But um, when the nuke boats came out, uh, that was a whole different animal. I mean, nuclear boats can go much faster and deeper than the older diesel boats good because uh, the steel quality and so forth is so much better and they're inspected. I mean, you're talking about a boat today that costs upwards of $4 billion 
That's a lot of money. And I got uh, in my piggy bank. That's mine too. Um, But those are some of the things um, that you could do and couldn't do uh, aboard some of the subs. I'm going to take a live commercial break here. Uh, We're running a little bit over, but it doesn't matter. But uh, I want to remind everybody that Georgia is turning into a Veterans Hall of Fame and a Veterans Everything, which is great. And I want to remind everybody that um, Colonel Rick White, retired, uh, is the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, which is downtown in the Floyd Building, right across the street from the state capitol. And if you live in Atlanta or you're coming to Atlanta and you've never been there, it's well worth taking a day, take your kids, take your grandkids, and walk through it and explain, you know, who these people are and read what the message is. And the heroes that we have in Georgia and had in Georgia are absolutely incredible. And that goes for women as well. Uh, some of the nurses, the triage and the and the dust-off, the nurse that would jump on a dust-off helicopter to go pick someone up is just as big a hero as any guy and we have women that have served uh, and so with that being said also want to mention the Johns Creek healing wall this is a 50% reproduction of the Vietnam veteran wall in Washington DC that toured all over the United States bringing healing and relief to those that had members that were killed in action our friends who were killed in action and it can be seen in Newtown Park in Johns Creek, Georgia and it is just something to display and Mike, you, you're involved do, uh, do you know when they're going to get the kiosk up? I do not know when that's going to happen but uh, it's definitely well worth going to see in the oh, three yeah. days that we had it there uh, three years ago we had 13,000 people that came to visit the wall. And we're going to have more and more as time goes on. And also want to want to mention uh, Peachtree Corners that has a memorial yes. for Vietnam veterans. And folks, you know, it's like my friend that uh, just came through surgery. You know, a, a person can serve and then have trauma affect their lives 20, 30, 40 years later or 50 years later and uh, we just want everybody to know and every veteran to know that we support you and that goes for the first responders too I've been very fortunate in my life that uh, I've, I've been a first responder I served in the uh, in the garden uh, during the Vietnam era like I said they misspelled era it, my, in my case it was <laughs> E-R-R-O-R, not E-R-A, but anyway, um, we made it through, and uh, I appreciate the fact that uh, many veterans uh, at least uh, acknowledge the fact that I served, and and that's, uh, it used not to be that way, but uh, if it wasn't for two things right now, we would not have much of a military. One is the reservists that are serving, and the second is the contract labor that uh, our government uses all the time, and we were talking about that. Sure. There's no reason that that 
either one of us couldn't go back in his contract. Exactly. Me with a broom, you with a keyboard. So <laughs> there you go. Anyway, let's get back to Submarine Mike and his story. And uh, what? Okay, so you go, you join. Your father had been in the Navy. My father had been in right. the Navy. Um, Interesting story about my father and his. My father was not a youngster. Uh, when World War II happened, when we got attacked at Pearl Harbor, my dad was already 27 years of age. Um, I never knew my father without a mustache. Um, and so he was standing on the steps in New York um, where he lived, uh, Church Street Station, um, were ready to go in to see the draft board and be inducted. And a Navy chief, uh, Navy had its office on the floor above the draft board, and uh, he uh, came up to my dad and said, uh, Hey, bub, what are you doing here? So my dad showed him the draft notice, and he said, uh, What's your background? So my dad had been an Eagle Scout and Order of the Arrow and Scoutmaster and all this kind of stuff. And so the guy takes him upstairs and inducts him into the Navy, tells him that, you know, this is what opportunities. My dad wound up becoming a pharmacist made first class on a transport, uh, taking troops over uh, to the Atlantic and then bringing prisoners back on the Pacific side. So it was, uh, uh, he had some interest in it, and obviously because he was in the Navy, that was the only branch of the service that I had even considered at the time. Uh, and when my turn came, um, I was a college uh, senior um, at Bradley University in Illinois. My folks still lived in New York, and uh, they were going to come out for graduation. Well, two weeks before my um, graduation, uh, my dad calls me up and said, Son, you got a letter from the draft board. And, of course, this was 1966. I had graduated high school in 62, and this was 66, four years later. And he says, what are you going to do? I says, well, you and Mom are coming out for graduation, right? And they said, yeah. Of course, everybody drove then. You didn't fly in the mid-60s. Um, and we went to graduation and then drove back, and he says, what are you going to do? I says, well... Um, I was very familiar with Connecticut and New London, and I said, I'm going to drive up to New London uh, and see if they're taking guys on the boats. And I knocked on the gate in New London, and the only question they asked me is, what's your education? And the minute I said, I graduated from college two weeks ago, they said, step right in. <laughs> and that was my introduction into the Navy and into the submarine service. You know, uh, and I... I I pray that we have this still, but I, I worry that we don't. But my dad's story was somewhat similar in that uh, as soon as Pearl Harbor broke out, he had a successful lumberyard in Brownville, Texas. Mm. And uh, he was a little bit older than most, but he had graduated from college when he was 18 and was a very, very smart man. And uh, so World War or the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, Dad immediately, I mean within hours, put his lumberyard up for sale, sold it, and uh, joined the Navy, and uh, 
he I don't even know if there was an ROTC, but he went in as an officer and uh, took my mother. Well, they they uh, they sent my dad because of his qualifications to uh, Boston, and so he spent his first six months in the Navy in Boston, not on a boat, but at Harvard, and. Mm. Uh, he, was, he became an intel officer, and he said, wait a second, this isn't why I joined. And he said, yes, it is. Whether you know it or not, we tell you. You don't tell us. And uh, they, uh, he was an in- intel officer, and that's where he got his training was at Harvard. And then he spent the next six months in Arizona and said, there ain't no water out here. You know, so, somebody's mixed up. I'm in the Navy. You're not supposed to be in the desert. And... Um, then he went to Pearl Harbor and uh, stayed in the the Navy. Came out as he was a captain when he came out, and uh, then uh, was in the reserves. And I remember, I remember clear as a bell when they wanted him to, uh, you know, do you want to give up your commission or stay in the reserves and go to Korea? And he said, No, I've had all the fun I can stand, and uh, <laughs> resigned his commission. But uh, you know, and I, I hope and I honestly I hope and pray that if and I thought I'd see more of it with nine eleven. And we did see it. There there was a, a, a little burst yeah. of patriotism and a lot of and folks joining. But I just hope we still have that feeling and the stuff of the knee and all of that is just to me garbage. We live in the best country in the world that has taken care of everybody. And in, if you feel like you've been mistreated some way or the other, it ain't the country, it's you. The opportunities are out there, and all you have to do is, is grab the ring as you go around, in my opinion. Yep. Um, so back to, the, back to a crazy person that will go underwater. And Well, what was your longest stay, if I can ask that? Um. You can, but I can't answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I just, you know, the we know about the nukes that can go submerged for what, like six months or something like that. They can go for as long as they have to. Uh, the only limiting factor for nukes is food. And the other thing that, like I said, just saying the word submarine makes me shake inside because I'm so claustrophobic. But if I want to add insult to injury, is thinking uh, about a nuke going underwater and under one of the ice caps. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm sitting here shaking in my boots thinking about that. I just, oh, let me out of here. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that really intrigues me, and um, even though this is radio broadcast, um, you can see on my shirt I have a pair of dolphins on there. The dolphins were the first creation of a separate medal by the Department of Defense in 1937 to signify a special uh, type of warrior. And um, if you were, for example, in a tank, um, you basically have four or five guys in a tank. One of them is doing the driving. One of them is, is on the loading. You know, loading. Exactly. And that's basically it. I mean, they might interchange their jobs so that one can, you know, do what the other one does. In a submarine... In order to earn these dolphins, 
um, which is that insignia, means that you have qualified in every compartment, in every system on that boat. Wow. I learned well over a hundred different systems in order to earn my dolphins. Usually it takes six months to a year of qualifications, going through the systems, learning the boat, and every boat is somewhat different. Even though there might be what they call class boats, like there's the Virginia class now and the Columbia class, um, those boats are somewhat different. Each one has a modification to it when something happens. There, for example, they might be building like 14 Virginia class boats. Well, Mod 1 is going to be the first one. Then they could have a Mod 2, 3, 4, and so forth. Uh, I think they're up to Mod 4 right now in the Virginia class because there have been modifications made so that a valve or a stem handle or something that might have been in position on the first boat might be in a slightly different position on the second boat because of some other piece of equipment that was either added or removed. And so... Um, in order for you to qualify, you have to learn where every handle, valve, and so forth is on that boat, just in case. And the reason for that, and I'll give you this example, it's different today on the nuke boats that have several levels to them. Um, but on the diesel-electric boat that I served on, there were 10 compartments from the forward torpedo room to forward battery, to control room, to after battery, to forward engine room, after engine room, maneuvering, and then uh, after torpedo room. And above control room, you had the conning tower. So there were different compartments, but it was only one central walkway and hallway. So if I was in the after torpedo room and I was going up to have chow, which was in the after battery, I had to pass through maneuvering, after engine room, forward engine room, and the after battery berthing compartment before I got to the galley. Anything that could happen, if I was going through the forward engine room and there was a collision alarm or something happened, I would have to take the place of the person that would have been in the forward engine room at the time the incident happened. That is the purpose of learning every system on the boat. So when I earned my dolphins and it was presented to me by the captain, he said to me, he says, you may not be the best person in time of an emergency. You may be the only person. Huh. So you are basically working for your entire crew of 110 or 120 or 30 men, depending upon the size of the boat. And so that's the importance of these dolphins, and that's why it's an honor to earn them and to wear them. What do you think about women serving on subs? Uh, at first, I was not in favor of it because I was concerned about uh, some of the health aspects that they might incur. Um, they originally were bringing on women to uh, work as the nuclear officers and my concern was from health standpoints if if some of these women either were thinking about getting pregnant or were 
um, that's not a good place to be in a nuclear compartment. So um, that was a concern. I think that the Navy has pretty well resolved their concerns about that. Um, they're now uh, there are four boats that had or have women on them, and those are the um, SSGNs, the um, guided nuclear uh, boats. And there are four: uh, the Ohio, the Michigan, the Florida, and the Georgia. And they're all part of the Ohio class boats. Uh, there are more, but those were um, fleet ballistic missile boats that were converted to guided nuclear boats. They took the, and this was a very interesting thing what they did. Uh, I have a, uh, a friend who just won the uh, Republican seat in uh, Camden County, and uh, her name is Sheila McNeil, and she was very instrumental in getting the uh, Navy Department to uh, consider changing some of the FBMs, Fleet Ballistic Missile or Boomers, to a SSGN boats. Seems to be a lot of acronyms. Yeah, well, it is, and the Navy is very <laughs> full of acronyms. But the the purpose of those boats are uh, back in the day when I was serving, if we took SEAL teams out, usually a SEAL team was eight or nine men, and you would the only lockout chamber, if you will, for a diesel-electric sub was the forward torpedo room had an escape trunk right there. You would get three guys to go into the escape trunk with their um, with their oxygen um, gear and so forth. You, they'd flood the uh, compartment um, and then once you were submerged, of course, at this time, they would open up the outer door to that and they would go into the superstructure and wait for team number two and then team number three. By that time, team number one already had used up 20 minutes of oxygen waiting for the other guys to join. So what they did in the uh, in the SSGNs were they converted two of the tubes to um, SEAL team deployment tubes, special operator tubes, where you can put all nine guys in one tube and all of their toys in the other. And so now all nine are using the same amount of air or oxygen breathing equipment and all their toys are in the other one. So you can basically send a boat out. It's beneath the water. The hatch opens at the top. They swim out, they get their toys, they go do their deed, they come back. You never know they were there. I think in, in our talking, I think I mentioned to you that I had a roommate here in Atlanta that was a SEAL. And not a whole lot smaller than, or not that much bigger than you are, And but he was tough, to say the least. But he was a linguist. And uh, the guy was absolutely incredible. Yeah. And uh, did I tell you the story? Yeah, you oh, did. Okay. And they have to be because yeah. you never know what world, part of the world, they're going to wind up. Well, he wound up uh, being let off by a sub off the coast of China, would swim in or paddle in and hide his gear in, in inland China, and then set up a listening post and have it arranged because there was he had no communications 
that was the other thing that would scare me to death. Help, help, come, you know. But uh, there were no communications, and it was right. all a matter. His biggest communications was his wristwatch, and being in an, at an assigned place when the sub surfaced to pick him up. That's right. And, uh, I, you know, we have so many brave people and so many wonderful Americans that have done so many risky things without and I, I used to ask Jerry didn't it weren't you scared no I had the whole United States behind me and uh, I just you know and, but I can't say that there were not some terrifying moments I no, can tell I'm sure you that. not um, I'll give you one example we almost lost the boat one time um, we left for Vietnam um shortly after the Pueblo was lost in uh, January of 1968. And um, we had traveled out to uh, Pearl Harbor, where we actually had a uh, change of command ceremony, <coughs> and we lost our um, captain at, the, at that time, uh, J.T. Lewis, who was a, a sailor's sailor. He was fabulous. And we picked up a new fellow, um, uh, Commander J.E. Job. And Job happened to live in Pearl and happened to be best friends with Lloyd Booker, who was the commander of the Pueblo. They had houses next to one another in Pearl. And he lobbied for us to go out and see if we could rescue her which obviously we could not because she had already been brought into um, North Korea as a trophy for them. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, on the way across towards Vietnam, um, we were traveling through um, the China Sea and the mainland coast of China. I was asleep at about 2 o'clock in the morning in the after torpedo room up in the what we call the bridal suite uh, I had a uh, an oxygen tank right above my uh, bunk and I was the third level up <coughs> and about 2 o'clock in the morning the uh, collision alarm went off and I leaped out of the bunk and um, I heard the uh, the sounding come over the 7MC that uh, we had uh, 110 feet of water beneath us. Well, anybody that has been to a beach area knows that 110 feet, you're not out that far. You you basically are chest high up to about maybe 15 or 20 feet, and then it drops off quickly. So you could be maybe 100 yards offshore and and have 110 feet. Well, when I jumped out of the bunk, I went to the forward to the after torpedo tubes to look at the depth gauge there, because the depth gauge there was saying 120 feet, which meant the boat was already in an upward angle, and that meant that the screws were in the mud at 130 feet. And uh, what was what had happened was 
uh, and we found this out afterwards, we were able to finally blow negative and then we flooded negative so we wouldn't broach because if we had broached and exposed ourselves, then the Chinese would have sent their little swift boats out and we would have been joining the other people in their famous prisons. Um, but what happened was um, we finally were able to elude and escape the area about 2 o'clock, in the, uh, more than that, about 4 o'clock, 4.30, when the sun was coming up, we surfaced um, and we were able to find out what had happened. Uh, we had been snorkeling at the time to recharge our batteries. Now, the way that the snorkel head valves work, it's on a rack and pinion gear. There are two one-foot tubes, rough, uh, roughly, one-foot diameter, that go up. The uh, And because it's a rack and pinion, the intake one goes up faster than the exhaust um, tube. The intake goes above the water line so it can pull in air to run the engines. The exhaust, which is going to have that white smoke that you get from diesel burning, is going to be beneath the water line so it diffuses in the water and you don't see it. The problem was that we were operating so close in, we actually, there are three electrodes on the top of a head valve. If the water touches any one of those three, when you usually get an overspray of, of uh, the sea, it'll shut the head valve, which will prevent you from getting water coming into the boat, into the bilge. Well, we had hooked a, uh, a truck tire that, if you're familiar with like a ring toss game at a carnival, you try to take the hoop and, and put it over the extending tube. So we hooked this truck tire, and it landed on top of the head valve. And when the head valve got water coming over, it shut, but it couldn't close it because of the truck tire. We took 10,000 gallons worth of water into the forward engine room in 30 seconds. Wow. And almost lost the boat. But those are, you know, part of the things that happen when, you know... When you're at sea, we're going to have to take a break here and um, mention the fact that uh, if you haven't been to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, please put it on your to do list, whether you live in Atlanta or coming to Atlanta. And also the J.C. Johns Creek Healing Wall that's in Newtown Park. Both of those are places you've got to go, and also Peachtree Corners Memorial. And uh, please always honor our veterans and also our active duty. And active duty can be first responders, military, whatever. If you see, if you're at the airport or no matter where you are, you see an individual in uniform, no matter what uniform it is. Well, Russian we might ignore, but uh, beyond that... Uh, if it's an American uniform, a first responder, a cop, whatever, buy them a lunch or at least go up and say thank you for your service. That means so much to every veteran and everybody that's serving today. And uh, I know that my son is very shy, as a matter of fact, even though he's an officer, he's one of them. But... Uh, 
he appreciates when people come up to him and say thank you for your service. And they all do. Everybody does. And uh, I'm just glad that the respect for veterans today is much better than it was many years ago or a few years ago, coming back from Vietnam and uh, serving in that era. But anyway, one question I was going to ask, Mike. Okay, so you're a a diesel um, electric boat. Was there any, and you were serving, though, when the nukes came on, right? Yes. So was there ever any animosity or anything like that between the diesel and the nukes? (laughs) Um, I'll say that tongue-in-cheek, yes, but... um, you have to understand how this thing kind of worked. Uh, I served beginning in 1966. The first nuke boat was the Nautilus, which was commissioned in 1955. It The keel was laid in 51, so somewhere between 51 and 66, when I was in Vietnam era, um, there were probably about 30 and I say that advisedly, about 30, maybe 35 boats of the nuclear variety that had been built or started during those 15 years. I mean, it's not like uh, today uh, where they're building one and a half to two per year. Um, It was more experimental. It wasn't budgeted uh, for that kind of stuff. And so there was a big difference. Um, It was also a difference in the level of ability to get close in. There was always, back in the early uh, 60s, there was a high-speed turbine whine that you could hear from miles away, even on the U.S. boats back then. So um, there were limits as to how close they could come in. Whereas what I explained earlier with the diesel boats, you can't hear anything running on a battery. So, um, you know, if it's slow, if they're going slow, you can't tell that they're even there. But not so with the uh, with the early nukes. Today, it's a whole different story. Today, those guys can go out um, and be in an area and submerge and stay at that level of submergence for weeks at a time without even um, uh, moving more than a foot either direction. That's the sensitivity, the level that they have today. Can can you imagine your boat with the electronics that they have today with the GPS and all of the other many, 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 many electronics that they have? Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. I mean, we didn't have GPS. We had uh, Loran. Um, yeah, basically, we had Loran um, navigation, um, which was basically checking the stars at night. Um, and, you know, it was all pre-GPS, um, so we didn't have that benefit. No, and, uh, you know, and, and so much more, and it's... it's uh it's got to be uh, interesting for you, to say the least. Have you done a walkthrough on a on a oh, yeah. recent? Yeah, every year I usually go down uh, to Kings Bay uh, last week in October 
we have normally a submarine vets of World War II uh, memorial service and event. And um, they did call it off for this year, obviously, because given the age of of the surviving um, World War II submariners that would have attended, uh, most of them were like mid-90s. And so um, I understand why they postponed it uh, for this year. Um, but I have to say that um, those guys still are my heroes. Um, and uh, you mentioned earlier uh, in, in your um uh, earlier broadcast about the Georgia Military Vets Hall of Fame. Um, I just want to give a little a plug in for that because um, Rick White and I um, have been friends for a long time. Um, Rick, Rick's son Graham, and my son Alex uh, were both classmates and played soccer together at Chattahoochee High School back in the uh, early nineties. Uh, so they've known each other for, uh, gosh, some 25 years or so, which is uh, about as long as I've known Rick. Uh, and I got very interested in the Georgia Military Vets Hall of Fame back in uh, 2013 in its inception year. And I am honored to say that um, I have both narrated uh, or written the narration and uh, induction uh, requirements for um, six members that are in currently and two more that are hopefully going to be inducted this year, uh, which will be on Saturday, November 7th um, of November uh, 2020 in Columbus, Georgia. And again, as you mentioned, it will be followed up in February of 2021 with the official induction at the uh, state capitol and then the um, the plaques and the narrations will be on display in the Floyd building across the street from the capitol but that's you know I go way back with Rick and uh, am honored to have uh, helped that uh, military vets hall of fame um, build itself over the years well, you know, and, and I want to throw out the name Paul Lindgren, too. That Yeah, uh, Paul Lindgren, uh, sure. Yeah, that started it, and then Rick is the uh, director of it. Yeah. And uh, uh, you're on the board. No, I'm uh, not on the you're board. You're not on the board? I no. thought you were. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm not on the board. I'm just one of the... Well, I'm putting you up. <laughs> let's, let's make Mike an honorary <laughs> board member. Uh, but, you know, it is... It's wonderful to live in a state... In a country that can honor their vets, yeah, and not order their vets, but honor. Well, you know, Paul is is in the uh, Hall of Fame in the state of Arkansas, which yeah. is where he was from. Yeah, I, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, I am yeah. honored to have uh, one of the vets that I put in, who was uh, awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously, um, in two states at the same year. Uh, he was born in North Carolina, but he was a resident of Georgia and lived in Georgia most of his life and raised his hand in Georgia to go into the military. There are three categories that you can um, be honored with into the Georgia Military Hall of Fame. It's value, uh, valor, achievement, or service. And I have had 
uh, one more than one in each of the categories, um, and uh, I'm honored to be uh, having the most um, uh, inductees into the Hall of Fame uh, written up than anybody uh, who has submitted names. So I'm very pleased with that. Um, also, and well, you should be. Thank you. Another thing that I would like to bring to light is the uh, uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in uh, Washington, D.C., in Arlington Cemetery. Um, I was unaware of this, but in 1962, when I graduated high school and went on to college, I had a close boyhood friend of mine by the name of Richard Azaro, and Richard... Um, he was not planning on going on to college. I have no idea why, but it was kind of like the thing to do back in the 60s. Um, but we had been friends ever since the fourth grade. Um, and he decided to go into the Army. So he went into the Army in 1962 following high school. And he wound up um, becoming a tomb sentinel, that's the guards, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Uh, from 1963 to 1964, he was a guard that did the typical turns and everything else. In Which the gives me the chill heels. bumps. I know, it does to me too. And he became the co-founder of the Society for the Honor Guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, he was the co-founder of that society, and next year, on Veterans Day 2021, will be the 100th anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and he has started an initiative called the uh, Never Forget Garden, which is uh, going to be, uh, which is available to be installed by anybody that want, has a garden. Matter of fact, Johns Creek Vets Association is planning on doing something to honor both the Vietnam vets that are buried or that are named on the wall and the wall that heals and for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier by planting a white rose which was the original rose that came back with the World War I unidentified soldier to, the, to Arlington to be buried in the tomb. And uh, I just received this morning a, an email from my friend Richard um, that France is looking forward to participating in a similar service in France um, on that Memorial Day. So uh, it's something you can uh, look up on uh, www.tombguard.org. Uh, and uh, you can see how you can start your own um, Never Forget Garden with the White Rose. And there's even a, uh, a lead to uh, contact to find out how you can obtain the White Roses from a local nursery in, in the U.S. So I'm interested in that as well. Mike Cotler, thank you so much for coming in today and being on the show today. We're going to have to wrap it up. And um, just want to uh, thank all of our veterans one more time. And if you have need personally or have a friend that has a need personally, just let us know, and we'll have a bunch of veterans praying for it. If numbers count, we'll have the count. Absolutely. And, uh, 
I appreciate you all listening to America's Web Radio. Support our veterans. Support our first responders and our active duty folks. With that being said, thanks for listening to America's Web Radio. And we'll be back with more after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.